From the Financial Times in London, I'm Polita Clark and this is FT News. Britain has set itself on a desperate and dangerous path as it negotiates its exit from the European Union, according to David Miliband, the former UK Foreign Secretary. The former Labour Party leadership candidate has been living in New York since he quit Britain in 2013 to run the International Rescue Committee, a global humanitarian organisation that helps refugees. He came into the FT to talk to me about the global refugee crisis in an interview that also touched on the government's disarray over Brexit. This is an extract from the interview which we'll be publishing next week on FT News. You talk in the book about the vengeful, demonising and dehumanising sentiment against refugees and immigrants amongst followers of populist movements. Like I actually the... say amongst a particular set of populist leaders. I actually name uh, them. Uh, well, <laughs> I think the demonising was by President Trump in talking about a flood of people trying to poison the country. But I mean, you do talk about the Tea Party yeah. in the US and UKIP in the UK. And I, I just wonder when you come back to the UK now and you see... UKIP's grand vision of Brexit actually becoming a reality or attempting to become a reality. What do you think this says about British attitudes to refugees and migrants? Well, I think that obviously the immigration issue played a big part in the referendum campaign. It wasn't the sole issue. I mean, Nigel Farage famously or infamously posed in front of a queue of refugees trying to get into Europe and said, you know, they're coming here, watch out. I still feel very proud whenever I come to Britain. I think this is an extraordinary country. It's a great country. But it's set itself, we have set ourselves, on a desperate and dangerous path because I only foresee tougher and tougher choices on Brexit, economic, social and political. And one thing about this week's chaos in respect of the Irish issue that I think is really important... These problems are not incidental to Brexit. They are integral to Brexit. It is at the core of Brexit to challenge the Anglo-Irish agreement of the Good Friday Agreement of 1998 because that agreement deliberately says a citizen of Northern Ireland can choose to be British or choose to be Irish or choose to be both. It's an extraordinary document. And for me, that's why I really hated that allegation that if you're an internationalist, you're a citizen of nowhere. No, you can be patriotic and British and be an internationalist as well. And I think that the fate of the modern world depends on how we can reconcile the national identity that people feel strongly with the obvious point that the connections between us as citizens of different parts of the world are closer and stronger than ever. And if we're consumed by divisions rather than united by our connections, then the fate of this more globalised, more interconnected world is going to be very dark indeed. And I I think it would be foolish coming back to Britain to say I can see that there's been a massive change of heart over Brexit. I don't think there has been a massive change of heart over Brexit. But of course, we haven't left yet. And we're only beginning to see the rubber hitting the road on the very, very difficult questions that it poses. And I believe this Irish question, even if they can talk their way around the particular issue of starting the second round of talks this week, the deeper issues... We've only scratched the surface of how hard it's going to be for the UK to reconcile its interest in being part of an interconnected world, but withdrawing from the largest trading and political bloc that is our neighbour. And, you know, when you look at the way that the Labour Party is approaching this, I mean, what do you make of Jeremy Corbyn's position? Because a lot of people are quite puzzled, actually, about what the Labour Party actually wants. Well, I I think Jeremy Corbyn would probably consider that a great success, because that means that the... People who are strongly in favour of remaining can hope that Labour is actually on their side and people who voted to leave can hope that, in fact, 
their interest or their view will be respected. So I think that the question for Labour is obviously the distinction between the tactical and the strategic. My own strong view is that the prospects for a more progressive and more egalitarian Britain are massively compromised by leaving the European Union. And that is the strategic issue, as far as I can see. Now, if in fact we're going to leave, it seems to me essential that we're as close as possible to the European model, because, of course, the European model is a political and social model, not just an economic model. But that's a debate that's clearly taking place within the party, the question of continued membership of the single market, continued membership of the customs union, which are now being proposed by Labour for the transition period. There's a longer-term question about where it fits, but an opposition party that sees a government in a state of weakness is always torn in two directions. One, exploit the weakness. Two, think through the strategic position of the country. And the really successful oppositions are able to do both. But when you look at that vote last year and you see all of the pro-Brexit votes that occurred in very strong Labour-held constituencies, do you think if you had actually been leader of the party then, would you have come up with anything more salient or more strategically possible than the sort of constructive ambiguity that we're seeing at the moment? Well, I think, look, two-thirds of Labour voters voted to stay in the European Union, one-third didn't my own former constituency voted strongly against. And it would be ridiculously arrogant to come and say, you know, if I'd still been the MP for Southfields, it would have been 65% the other way rather than 65% to leave. I, I think that would be hubristic in a really wrong way. I think that the inequalities, insecurities of the last 15 years of globalisation have come back to haunt us. And in a way, globalisation has been a victim of its successes as well as a victim of its failures. It's easy to say financial crisis, Iraq, Afghanistan, etc. We're paying the price of that. Sure we are. But we're also paying the price of the fact that globalisation set out to integrate the global economy. It's done it beyond anyone's expectations. But of course, that means a shift in the relative balance of power. Globalisation set out to connect the world. It's done it more quickly and faster than beyond anyone's expectations. But that means we're only as strong as the weakest link. We're only as secure as the weakest airport security system in the world, not just the strongest airport security system in the world. And that is why that renews my internationalism rather than dilutes it. However, it's clear that there is a market for deglobalization. There's a market for rolling back globalization because there is the allure, in my view, the false allure that rolling back globalization will lead to a safer, sounder, more equal world. I don't think it will, actually. I think it will worsen the political choices and prospects. But it's clearly an argument. And there is an allure in certain communities for it. Obviously, the striking thing in the US is that politics and economics are pulling in opposite directions there too. Two and a half thousand counties, administrative districts in the US, which voted for President Trump out of 3,000, they account for 36% of US national income. And so it's a similar divorce of economics and politics. And what that says to me is that we, our political leaders and our business leaders, need to do a miles better job at pulling up those who are left behind rather than looking like that we're pulling up the drawbridge. That was former UK Foreign Secretary David Miliband. And if you'd like to hear the rest of our interview, we'll be publishing it next week on FT News. Join Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin for a new edition of the Capital Ideas Podcast. 
In unscripted conversations with investment professionals, you'll hear real stories about successes and lessons learned, informed by decades of investment experience. It's your look inside one of the world's largest asset managers. New episodes are available monthly. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Invest 30 minutes in an episode today. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.